The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people, his own people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, as I prayed a moment ago, you are the true light of the world, and what a joy it was for me to think this morning of the fact that we need to exert zero energy to make the sun shine. It will shine on its own, and much more so. We need to exert zero energy to make you, the true light, shine in this room now. We just need to sit back and watch you do your thing. And so I pray in your mighty name, in your holy name, in your merciful name, I pray that you would show yourself to us now, Father. We can look at the words of the Bible together, and I can speak the words that you've given me to say today, but only you can reveal yourself to minds and to hearts. Only you can shape lives. Only you can save. Only you can change. Only you can confront in love. Only you can strengthen and encourage and send people on the mission that you've assigned to them, Lord. Only you can do these things, but oh, Lord, you can do these things. And so we pray now that you will, and we give you our thanks by faith for what you will do. In Jesus' great and gracious name we pray, amen. In some ways, John chapter one, verse six seems abrupt, and it could even seem like it's a little bit of a distraction, so let me just quote for you the, the flow of it so that you can feel what I mean. John begins and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him was not one thing made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God named John. Just seems like a distraction, doesn't it? Our mind was just in heaven and now we've come down to earth. Our mind was on eternal things. Our mind was in the beginning before anything was, and now we've gone to this particular moment, to this particular man named John, and it could seem like John the Apostle is changing subjects, but actually the case is that he is an artist, and I hope that we'll see that as we work our way through his gospel in the coming months. John chose to begin his gospel by creatively weaving together two distinct but related stories, And he did it in such a way as to evoke a sense of awe and a sense of worship from all of his readers. When art is at its best, it is deeply rooted in objective truth, but it says it in such a way that we can feel the beauty and power of truth. Amen? I said, amen? Amen. Good. Truth is a beautiful thing, but if it's just the facts, it doesn't feel beautiful, does it? 
Art helps us to feel the power and to feel the beauty of truth. Although Paul was making a different point, I'm reminded of his words when he said the letter kills but the spirit gives life. As I've told you before, truth gives love its substance, but love gives truth its life. And the best art fully integrates both these things. And I'm telling you, the Apostle John is an artist. And I'm gonna try to help us see this in the coming months. He begins his story with the story of the word in verses one through five. He then takes us to this man named John and for the next several verses and actually into chapters two and three, he's gonna weave these stories back and forth from the word to John and from John to the word and he's gonna keep on doing this until we see the height of the glory of God manifest through his son and until we feel the power of the purpose for which John was sent and I pray that we'll have eyes to see and we'll have ears to hear not only the facts that are being told, but the way that it's being told, the the power and the beauty that's trying to be communicated to us through the way that John communicates. John, the John in verse six, actually I suppose this is true for both Johns, the name derives from a Hebrew name, Yohanan, and that name means to whom Yahweh is gracious, to whom God is gracious. In Luke 1, five through 66, we learn how John the Baptist got his name, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that he was called John the Baptist and not just John. Now, just to be clear, that means John the one who baptizes and not John the one who founded the Baptist denomination. There is a silly movement throughout history called the Landmark Movement that actually tries to trace Baptists back to John the Baptist, but that's not true. John was the one who baptizes. He's not the one who was a Baptist, so to speak. And our Lutheran brothers and sisters will say amen. True. In John's day, virtually everyone in Israel had heard that John was calling them to a baptism of repentance. And everybody in his day knew, and most people in his day acknowledged that he was a very great man of God. I'll say more about that when we get later into the story. But as great as he was, the Apostle John tells us that he was just a man who came to be. Now I put it that way, that he came to be, because this is how uh, the the Greek literally reads in verse six. It says, there came to be a man whose name was John. And I wanna point that out to you, because you may remember from last week that in verse three, it says that all things came to be through the word. And without him came to be nothing that came to be. So when we get to verse six now and it says there came to be a man named John, we're supposed to get the signal here that this word is responsible for John. This John is not just coming out of nowhere. Somehow, even though it's mysterious and the Apostle John is just sort of trying to pique our curiosity and get us to wonder about things and think about things and question things, he does want us eventually to draw the conclusion that John was not self-existing, but that somehow he was created by the Word. He was sustained by the Word. Whatever his life is about, it is ultimately owing to the Word. John is a servant, but the Word is the source and this is very important for us to understand. Be that as it may, the apostle John tells us that John was sent from God, and this implies that his authority came not from himself. He was not a self-appointed prophet. His authority came not from any human institution. He was not an institutionally sent prophet. 
John's authority came from God. In fact, in the broader biblical context, this language of being sent from God puts John the Baptist in the rarefied air of people like Moses and like Isaiah and like Jeremiah. This is a prophet being sent from God, and we'll see more in coming days just how powerful he was and just how people received, therefore, what he had to say. And I point this out to make that same point. If this man has authority from God, if he has been sent from God into the earth to proclaim a message, then, beloved, we should respect him, we should honor him, and more importantly, we should listen to what he has to say. The authority that God gave to John was not for us to make a big deal about John. It was to draw attention to the things that God sent John to say, and so we would do well to humble ourselves and listen. With this in mind, the apostle now tells us that John came as a witness to do what? To bear witness about the light. Matthew Henry noted that he did no miracles. John did, had no visions, at least not visions of which he wrote, but he came with a singular purpose, and that was to point to the light and say, that is the true light. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light. There are uh, multiple aspects of John's life that we'll consider in the days to come, but make no mistake, every single piece of his life was focused on this one purpose. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light. Now, it is in Greek as it is in English. The words witness and bear witness have legal overtones to them. And so the picture is that John the Baptist came onto the stage of the earth to bear legal testimony about this light. He came into the courts of the Lord. He came into the courts of the covenant people of God to say, look that way, look at that one, look to him. He is the true light from God. And as the Apostle John will tell us of many, many who come into the world to testify to Jesus, not least of which is God the Father himself, he will not tell us of one who is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist stands above all human beings who have ever walked this earth and pointed to the true light, pointed to the life, pointed to the word, pointed to Jesus Christ and said, he is the one. Beloved, please keep your mind fixed on this fact. John came to witness to the light. This is the purpose of his life. And this is why it says at the end of verse seven that the purpose of his ministry was that all might believe through him. Now we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. The whole purpose of the the writing of the Gospel of John is so that we would believe, right? And that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. Well, this is why John was sent, so that all would believe. John was not sent simply so that we would admire the light. John was not sent simply that we would acknowledge the light or quote the light or put the light among a a pantheon of other lights that we admire. I'm thinking the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine about the Baha'i faith, which is sort of a 60s hippie, yuppie, made up kind of religion where they basically take all the leading lights of various religions and put them into one thing. Well, Jesus is is no, uh, just a, a member of a panel of inspiring people, and that's not John's purpose. John's purpose was to help us understand the utter uniqueness of the light that we might bow our lives before him. He came to testify that all might believe, not in John, but that all might believe in the light through John. Now, since he was such a great man of God, and I think even if you're just reading the Gospel of John sort of at full speed rather than going slowly as we're going right now, you might be tempted or, or at least you might wonder if John is some kind of manifestation of the light itself. 
But the Apostle John makes very clear in verse eight that that's not the case. He just simply says he was not the light. In case you're falsely making that connection, disconnect it. John was not the light. He simply came as a witness to bear witness to the light. John was a servant. The word is the source. With this in mind, the Apostle turns our attention back to the word whom he now calls the true light. And please notice the addition of that word. So in verse four, he's called the light. Now he's called the true light. And I see at least four reasons why John calls him the true light. First, to say that Jesus is the true light means that whereas John and other prophets have a measure of greatness, the word of God, the life of God, Jesus Christ is the actual source of the glory of God. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God. So other prophets, we can maybe think of them as lamps, and Jesus Christ is like the blazing of the sun. He is the source of every other prophet. He is the true light. They come to bear witness to the light, but he's actually the one about whom they came to bear witness. He is the real light. He is the actual light. He is the self-generating light. Other prophets are like the moon. They receive light from the sun and reflect back part of, it, of what they receive. But Jesus is like the sun itself who generates his own light. Second thing, to say that the word is the true light means that he is not false or deceptive. You remember in verse five that the apostle writes that the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we praise God that that's true. But if you stop to think about what's being said there, it assumes that the darkness is trying to overcome the light, right? It assumes that there's a pursuit. It assumes that there is a a battle. It's just that the darkness is not gonna win. Sometimes the darkness seems so strong, it seems like it's going to win, but it is not going to win. The light is shining and the darkness has not overcome it, it will not overcome it, it will never overcome it. One way that the light tries to overcome, or that the darkness tries to overcome light, is it masquerades as light, right? You remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 14. He said, no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as a what? as an angel of light, right? There are many so-called lights in this world that are actually deceptions. There are many truths that are saying that they're true, but they're false. There are many people purporting to be the true light when in fact they are not the true light. So for Jesus to say, or for John to say about Jesus that he is the true light is to say that he is the one, and time will tell that he is the one that's authentic, that's true, that's real, that will last over time. Third, To say that Jesus is the true light means that he is the fulfillment of the metaphor of physical light. Whereas physical light shines into the void of the darkness of space, Jesus Christ, the true light, prevailingly shines into the spiritual life of all who look to him. And evidently the Apostle Paul got this point about physical light. Evidently he saw in Genesis the metaphor for the gospel because he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, as we saw last week, he wrote these words. He said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So both Paul and John are saying that in part, the purpose of physical light was to prophesy the coming of a greater and more permanent light, namely Jesus Christ. 
And I found this same metaphor the other night, even in my basement, when I went down at six in the morning to work in this dark space, and I couldn't see a thing, and I really needed to see. So I just clicked on a little light, right? And then what happened when I clicked the light on? I could see, and I could be productive, and I could work. And I realized this little light bulb is a metaphor for what Jesus Christ does for us all. This is a metaphor for the fact that he is the true light of life. And how much more the sun that shines... How much more is that sun a metaphor for Jesus? Finally, to say that the word is the true light means that he is the fulfillment of a particular line of prophecy. So let me just read a few texts for you that point this out. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And then Moses says, a star shall come out of Jacob. A bright sun is going to rise over Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. One with power, one with authority will come and shine. Isaiah joins in in chapter 9, verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then again in chapter 42, he says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then finally, Malachi rises up and joins in the chorus, and he portends a more uh, judgment-oriented prophecy of the light coming. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stubble, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of my righteousness shall rise upon you with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Beloved, the word of God that was with God in the beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true light of of life. He is greater than every prophet. He is the genuine light that will be proved to be genuine over a long, long period of time. He is the fulfillment of the metaphor of physical light, and he is the, meta- he is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were breathed into his prophets over so many centuries of time. And just think with me about how great Jesus must be in order for these things to be true. Can you imagine saying to a room full of people, I am the true light? Can you imagine saying to a room full of people, I am the source of real life, I am the fulfillment of prophecy, I'm actually the fulfillment of the prophecy of the sun that's shining upon you. Think about how great Jesus Christ must be in order for these things to be true and let the Apostle John lift up your chin and realize he's greater and more glorious than you have ever seen. May the Lord grant us grace along with all the saints to see the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the glory of Jesus Christ. As the true light of life, the Apostle John tells us now in verse nine that this word gives light to everyone. The Greek word here for give light more means enlighten, to enlighten. And I point this out because the the term give light could make it sound like Jesus grabs light from outside of himself somewhere and then comes and, and delivers it to you as a gift, but this is not the picture at all. The picture is that Jesus is like the brilliance of the sun. 
that just in its shining enlightens everybody. It's not that, the, that Jesus has something outside of himself that he's delivering to us as a gift. It's that the very being of Jesus is enlightening every single human being. And the, the way that this is written in the Greek uh, uh, text is saying that he is enlightening and enlightening and enlightening and enlightening and enlightening every single person forever and ever, amen. He is the light of life for everyone, no matter how they respond to him and no matter their standing with him. It's as the Lord said in Matthew 5, 45. He said, for he, God the Father, makes his sun to shine on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. And so as the one who is God, the word is able to enlighten everyone. And as the one who is merciful beyond imagination, he is willing to enlighten everyone. He is great and he is gracious, beloved, beyond anything we have ever thought beyond anything we have ever imagined. And I just wanna encourage you to think about these things later today, ponder these things, meditate upon these things, think about how great Jesus must be in order to be the one who enlightens every single human being every day forever and ever, amen. He's much greater than we think he is. The Apostle John now tells us in verse 10 that the true light of life was coming into the world and that when the time was full, he actually came into the world. This is a small hint of what he's gonna say more about in verse 14, which we'll look at in a couple weeks when I get back from Romania. Even though he enlightened the world day by day, the Lord thought it good to manifest himself in the world on a particular day. But sadly, when he came into the world, the very world that was created through him, you know how they responded? It says that they did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. So on the one hand, while most of the broader world didn't even know that Jesus was literally in the world, they didn't have the chance to know because he was in a particular place at a particular time, I think the apostles' point is that those who were in that area from the broader world that encountered Jesus failed to know Jesus. And this doesn't mean that they just failed to know him with their minds, it means that they failed to listen to him and embrace his message. It is in Greek, as it is in many languages around the world, that the word know implies more than intellectual apprehension. It implies a, a relational connection. It implies a relational acceptance. And what he's saying is that the very word that created the world, that caused us all to come into being, he came into the world and the, word sa the world said, no thank you. Many of you will remember Vijay Masala who's come to visit us a couple times. He wrote to some of us the other day to tell us about a pastor friend of his who was witnessing up in Hyderabad, India. This was about three or four days ago. And he was sharing the gospel there in Hyderabad and some Hindus didn't like that and so they came and just beat the snot out of this guy. And they beat him up real bad. He's in the hospital. The last I heard is he's in a coma. Vijay said he may never walk again, he may never talk again. They, they beat him up badly. Beloved, the world did not want to know Jesus then and it does not want to know Jesus now. This is what's being said. What, what the Apostle John is saying is not, well, there were people all over the world, they never had the opportunity to know him. He's saying, no, those who encountered him wanted little to nothing to do with him. And to make the case even worse, when the light came to his own covenant people, when the light came to his very own land, the land which he had promised to and delivered to his precious people, they did not receive him. 
They did not acknowledge who he was. They did not listen to his message. They did not consider the things that they were saying, that he was saying. Rather, they saw him as a threat and they did everything they could to neutralize him and then to get rid of him altogether. And I wanna help us to see want to help us to understand that their resistance to the word was not new, but that it was very ancient. The the Jewish people had been resisting their creator, manifesting in their midst for centuries and centuries. And if we had been them, we would have done the exact same thing. But they were the ones in, in, in this case who did that. So let me just read two places from you to understand. Psalm 81, 8 through 14 was written 900 years before Christ. Hear, O my people, while I'll admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. They did not receive me, in other words. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hands against their foes. And for the most part, the people did not listen. There was always a remnant. There was always a remnant of people who looked to the Lord and loved the Lord, but for the most part, they did not listen. And one way we know that is because hundreds of years later, the Lord again pled with his people through the prophet Jeremiah. This comes from Jeremiah 7, 25 to 26. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffed in their necks. They did worse than their fathers, Jeremiah said. And surely when Jesus came, beloved, the people of Israel did worse than their fathers who had done worse than their fathers because now they rejected not the servants of God, but they rejected the very Son of God. They now not rejected the lamps who were pointing to the light, but they actually rejected the actual light. They committed horrible, terrible sin when they would not receive Jesus, but because of the hardness of their own hearts, they would not receive Jesus. The battle between light and dark had been raging in Israel for a very long time, and when Jesus Christ came, that battle was raging still. And yet, beloved, all this is setting us up for verse 12, and yet the truth remained that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, because look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, so there were some who did, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave them authority on the basis of his own authority to relate to God again, not as servants, not as slaves, not as subjects, but as sons and daughters, beloved. He gave them the right to go from enemies of the state, not just to friends, not just to allies or whatever, but as children sitting at the very table of God. And he did this by his own authority. And again, I wanna ask you to ponder this. Think about how great Jesus must be if he has the authority to say, you and you and you may now be a child of God. That is an authority that we cannot imagine, beloved. This is very, very good news. However, given the stark situation in the world, doesn't it make you wonder why some people believed? 
if, if people were refusing to know Christ, if his own people were refusing to, to receive him and to believe in him and to follow him and to respect him, how could it be that anybody received him at all? John will have a lot to say about this throughout the next months that we go through his gospel. He'll have a lot to say. But in verse 13, he begins his answer. He gives us three negatives and one positive. He tells us three reasons why they did not believe, and he tells us one reason why they did believe. First of all, those who believed in Jesus were born not of blood. And I, I think that simply means not of genealogical heritage. Now this would have been very important to Jewish people who thought that their relationship was secure with God because of their relationship to Abraham and to Moses. They could prove the genealogy and therefore they thought that they were saved and they thought that they were safe. But as Jesus said to some Jewish leaders in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't put your hope in your heritage is what he's saying. Because I tell you, Jesus said, God could take these stones, God could take these chairs, God could take these lights and make children for himself. He could do anything he wants. Don't think that you are his child because of your genealogical heritage. So those who received and believed in the true light did not do so because they were born into the right family. Being born into the right family will do nothing for you. It was true then and it's true now, beloved. Just experiencing physical birth is not enough to be part of the family of God. So what then? Second, John tells us that those who believe in Jesus were born not of the will of the flesh. I take this to mean not of the human intention of any group of people or even the person, him or herself, who's choosing to believe. As troubling as it is to hear, I would argue that the will to believe in the true light is not in the human heart and it's not in the human community. We looked at this last week, but I want to mention it to you again. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1-2, he said that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Dead, beloved. And as I've said to you many times before, dead people don't make decisions. Dead people are unable to choose life. Dead people don't have the will to choose the light. Just as we were completely incapable of choosing physical birth, so we are incapable of choosing spiritual birth. So if that's not how we're born again, or if no group of people could come together and do that for us, then how? Third, John says that those who believed in Jesus were born not of the will of a man. Now that word in Greek is in, the Eng is in the singular, so it is of a man, but that word is more often used to mean a husband, and I think that's actually what John has in mind. They were born not of the will of a husband. An earthly father has a, a limited capacity to bring a human being into his earthly family, but he has no capacity to bring a person into the spiritual family of God. Just think this through with me for a second. First of all, an earthly father needs a woman, hopefully a wife, right? He can't bring a, a, a human being into the world by himself, right? So his will is limited because he needs the partnership of somebody else. But I want, I want us to press a little farther and understand that when a mother and father decide to have a child, what, what ends up really happening is that they're just dreaming of a child in an abstract way, and they might pick out a name to go with that child, but what they cannot do is pick out a specific being to bring into human being, right? They don't have the ability to say, you shall now come and physically be part of my family. 
What they have the ability to do is, is do what God allowed them to do, come together in a physical union and give birth to a human being. But it's God who knitted that one together in the mother's womb, right? When Rachel was born in 1994, May 4th, 1994, now my wife is a Spanish teacher, and I was trying to get her to hold on for Cinco de Mayo, but she had already been in labor for 27 hours, and she just looked at me and said, you say that again, I'm going to kill you, basically. So <laughs> May 4th, we were close enough. When Rachel was born, I'm telling you, I came from a bigger family, and I had been dreaming about having kids since I was a little kid. I'm the sixth of six children, right? So I was an uncle when I was 11 months old. I had kids around all the time. I couldn't wait to be a father. Rachel is born, I hold my child for the first time, and I was surprised by the lack of emotional connection that I felt to my daughter. Every day for months while Kim was pregnant, I spoke to Rachel, I prayed with Rachel. In fact, the sort of famous story in our family is that when Rachel was born, she comes out, she's crying as babies do, and I went over to her and I put my head right by her head and I said, Rachel, it's daddy. And just like that, she stopped crying and she just started doing, you know, like looking around and she never started crying again. And the nurse looked at me like, she's like, what the heck was that all about? And I told her, well, she knows her father's voice because I've been talking to her for months and months. But I was surprised, and to be honest with you, I felt kind of sad because I didn't feel like a real deep emotional connection with her. So I, I, walked, I went for a walk in the hospital, and I was just asking the Lord about this, asking him to help me understand. And it hit me at some point that the reason I don't feel this connection is because I don't know Rachel yet. It's like uh, the idea I had of having a child has now become an actual human being but I have to get to know this human being. So today, Rachel and I are very connected, but it took time. I did not have the ability to choose Rachel from before the foundation of the world. God did, right? God is the one who knit her together in her mother's womb. So if, a, if the will of a father cannot even bring a specific being into an earthly family, how can the will of a father possibly bring a person into God's spiritual family? And if not in all of these ways, if a person is not born of genealogical heritage, not born of the will of human beings, not born of the will of a father, then how is a person born? John answers in a, such a simple and such a profound way. The person is born of God. Born of God. By his own free will, by his own sovereign choice, God chose some from among those who rejected the light to believe and receive eternal life. This doesn't mean that God violated people's will. It means that he overcame their death, he overcame their resistance, and he brought them to a place where they really wanted now what God wanted for their lives. I had a chance this weekend to tell my story, like an hour-long version of my testimony to a room full of men, many of whom were not believers. And, and I remember just saying to them how I just felt like God walked into my life and, and shone the light and I was able to see for the first time. He came into my life and he did something for me that I could not do for myself. And I was kind of scared of him. I was actually trembling. But all I wanted in my life was God. I wanted nothing more. I wanted nothing less. The Lord chose me but believe me, I wanted him. I once heard D. James Kennedy say that when a person is coming into the household of God, when they've heard the gospel and they're wanting to believe and they're walking in, there's a banner over the door that says, all who will come, come. And then when, by the grace of God, they enter into the family, they go through the door, they become part of the family, they look back at the threshold and they see there's a different sign above the door and it says, I chose you from before the foundation of the world. 
And that's how it is. Somehow, some way, beloved, God made a choice about us. We did not make a choice for God. And somehow, some way, this is what brought us into God's family. I know that this teaching raises lots of questions and sometimes objections, but I wanna encourage us right now to just put all those things aside, to humbly ponder the words of God and to receive what he has to say. He alone has the power to actually bring forth physical birth, and he alone has the power to bring forth spiritual birth. Somehow or other, the children of God owe their everything. They owe their spiritual life to God and to nobody else. Sometimes our flesh rises up and says, no, I have to understand these things or I will not believe. But the Lord would lovingly say to us, no, my child, first you have to to believe and then I will help you see. So I encourage us to just ponder upon these things and let the Lord minister to us. Now, in closing, beloved, John wrote these things not only to inform us about the light, but he wrote to inspire us, he wrote to confront us, and he wrote to invite us into the grace of God. I say that he wrote to inspire us because I think, as I told you last week, that John, at the beginning of his gospel, is trying to fill our eyes, fill our minds, fill our hearts with such a massive vision of who Jesus Christ is that we'll never again think of him the same, and so that we'll read his gospel in a particular way. And I just want to encourage you, let John do what he's trying to do in your life. Let him open up your eyes. Let him expand your horizons. Let him give you a vision of who Jesus is that you have never had before. Let him do this. I say that John is writing to confront us because the truth is that the battle that raged in the world back then is still raging in the world right now, isn't it? The battle that was raging back then is still happening because people still don't want to know Christ and even people from his own people don't want to receive him. And I do in part mean Jewish people, but I also mean people who go under the banner of Christianity but actually want nothing to do with Jesus as he is. I've said to you before, there's an old saying, it says that God made us in his image and ever since we've been returning the favor, isn't that right? We like to shape Jesus into the kind of Jesus that we want him to be, and as long as he'll be the one that we want him to be, well, we'll accept that one, but we don't want the real Jesus. Beloved, that is a way of rejecting Christ. That is a way of not receiving Christ, and it's still happening today. The battle is still raging today. Or if I could bring this closer to home, the battle between light and darkness is still raging inside of each one of our hearts. In fact, even for those of us who do love Jesus, even for those of us who are surrendered to Jesus, there's parts of us that don't want what he wants for us. There's parts of us that think we better know the path to joy for ourselves than Jesus knows. There's parts of us that say, Lord, you can have all this piece of our life, but there's a little closet over here that I'm gonna keep for myself. Thank you very much. I don't wanna give this up. There's a battle inside of us, beloved. There's, there's resistance inside of us, and there's even at times rejection inside of us from us toward God. The battle is raging inside of us, beloved. And I think John is writing to confront that in us. He doesn't just want us to see a dynamic in the world. He wants to see it, us to see it in our hearts. And we would be wise. We would do well to let him have his way in us. We would be wise and we would do well to ponder these things and ask the Lord to reveal to our own selves the resistance that is in us. And finally, beloved, I say that he wrote to invite us into the grace of God because no matter the power of resistance in our life, there's a truth that remains. And that is that the light is shining, but the darkness is not going to overcome it. It is never going to overcome it. 
There's a truth that remains. It says to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. Not servants, not subjects, not soldiers, not slaves, but children of God. That is an enormous, eternal privilege and power. And Jesus grants it to everyone who does one simple thing. They look to him and believe. And and beloved John is writing to invite us into that grace. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ before, he has you here today so that you will see his glory and come into his grace. And all you have to do is believe. It's a work that God will do in you, but you have your part. You just open your heart and surrender. For those of us who've already believed in him, the truth is just the same. We just have to surrender our heart. Let him take more and more of the territory inside of you. Let him have your way in you. Oh, beloved, there's more light. There's more joy. There's more fruitfulness coming if you will just say, Lord, just do what it is that you want to do in me. So to help us process this, I just want to put a few questions up on the PowerPoint here, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing our closing song. I just encourage you. There's other questions in your bulletins, but maybe you would want to write some of these down, just things to help you search your own heart and let John have his way in you. More so, let Jesus have his way in you. Number one, what did you see in Jesus today that inspired you the most? How have you come to have more awe in God What is something you want to think about more? What is something you want to ponder more? What is something you want to investigate more? What has made you look to Jesus and say, wow, he is awesome. He is glorious. Number two, how is the Lord using John 1, 6 to 13 to confront the resistance and rebellion in your heart today? Ask the Lord to reveal you to yourself. Just ask him to help you see what's there because number three is coming. Are you willing to embrace Jesus' offer of grace today? We're gonna see in a couple weeks that Jesus came filled with truth and with grace. And those two things are really important. So right now, I have one of my cars that, that sprung a leak in the radiator, right? I need someone to come and tell me the truth. Son, you have a problem, you have an issue, you have a radiator thing. And if you don't fix that, your car's gonna be history. It's fixable, this is doable. The, the great mechanic would say, I have the power, I can fix it, right? But I must tell you the truth, your car has a serious problem. That's the truth part. But the grace is, I can fix it, I can fix it. So confess your sin, confess the truth. Agree with God's assessment of yourself because beloved, right on the telling of the truth is a wave of grace, absolute wave of grace, an ocean of grace that comes to transform and to heal. So with that, let me just commend those questions to you and let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering today. We thank you so much for the privilege of pondering a few of your words. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would cause these words to have their way in our lives. I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through these words in our lives. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty and the glory and the grace and the grandeur of who Jesus is. I pray that you would help us not to resist but to receive any way that he would want to confront us because surely he has the best in mind for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves, that we would bow ourselves before you, that we would open our arms wide and our mouths wide and receive all the grace that you want to pour onto our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you came to tell the truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you came to pour grace upon us. Oh, Father, please let these things become real to us. And Lord, before we see what you will do, we give you our thanks because we trust that you're in our midst. We trust that you're working in our midst. And so now we rise to to worship you, to sing to you in song one more time. In Jesus' name, amen.